I'm so grateful for my brother Albert's ministry of mentoring, and I mentioned to him on Friday, our, our church needs spiritual sages and spiritual fathers, and brother Al is one of our spiritual sages and spiritual fathers in our church family, godly men who are willing to invest the time in mentoring other men, mentoring brothers, younger men, younger fathers, younger husbands, and this mentoring ministry belongs as a part of our vision at Windsor Road to be a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. And what we learn when we, uh, our eyes track that vision statement is that which fuels life change is being unshakably committed to His Word. Let's all read this vision statement together. Our vision is to be a life-changing community of authentic believers passionately pursuing Christ, unshakably committed to His Word, thoroughly equipped to serve, contagiously influencing our world for Him. So life change happens when we spend time in God's Word with God's people. So it's not just God's Word alone, although we have time for that during the week. It is in sharpening one another. It is God's Word with God's people. And the result is that we become a Christ-exalting, Bible-wise community. Bible-wise community. A spiritual community where the Bible is read, understood, appreciated, cherished, and practiced. And that leads me to our text today. Because our text tells us what that looks like in real life. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're studying the book of Nehemiah, the personal journal of a man named Nehemiah who lived 450 years before Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah was a Hebrew official who served Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the emperor of Persia. This vast empire that extended from Greece to the west, India to the east. And Nehemiah was uh, basically his security director. He was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, a very trusted and loyal and man of integrity. But he was committed to Israel's God, Yahweh, the true God. Of scripture and this God sent Nehemiah from the royal city of Susa to the rubble of Jerusalem and after 52 days of racehorse pace Nehemiah organized God's people together to rebuild the infrastructure of the city to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and that's what we read in Nehemiah chapters 1 through seven rebuilding the city but 
there was an end to that. And it was the rebuilding of the people of God. So chapters 1 through 7 deal with rebuilding the city of God. And chapters 7 through 13 concerns rebuilding the people of God. Now the question is, what does it take to rebuild the people of God? We know what it takes to rebuild a city. It takes stones and mortar and wood and steel. But what does it take to rebuild the people of God? Well, Brother Albert just gave us a taste of what it takes. It takes the Word of God to rebuild the people of God. And so I've tagged our message this morning, Treat Yourself to the Voice of God. Treat Yourself to the Voice of God. Here's Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, help me here with this, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, that is, with interpretation, or paragraph by paragraph, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Treat yourself to the voice of God. <laughs> it's clear, isn't it? It takes the word of God to rebuild the people of God. Here's the big idea. God's word in your life will build your life. God's word in your life will, will build your life. God's word will build a life that lasts. A strong life. A secure life. A joyful life. A stumble-free life. Church family, here is what I want for you. As your pastor who loves you, if you will immerse your life in the Word of God, you will have, you will have a Psalm 119, 165 life. That's right, there's at least 165 verses in Psalm 119. You're welcome that we're not doing 119 today. But if we were, I would just talk about 165. Psalm 119, verse 165 says this. I want this. I want this for your life. I want this for our church. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Nehemiah chapter 8 invites us to a stumble-free life. And it comes when God's Word is declared and received. That's verses 1 through 8. It comes when God's Word is understood and felt. That's verses 9 through 12. And then it comes when God's Word is, is published and practiced. That's verses 13 to 18. That word, his word in your life will build your life. God's word, good explanation, great joy, much strength. That's what I want for us this morning. Amen. Oh, would you would you have loved to have been there in Nehemiah chapter 8? I'm no less than 43,000 people, men, women, children, gathering in one place. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says they gathered as one man, as one. Uh, so a year before, think about what, had ha what that was like a year before. Well, a year before that, Jerusalem was a ghost town. A year before that, Hebrew people were downtrodden and depressed. A year before that, people feared the ward bosses like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. But my, what a difference a year makes. Out of the rubble emerged life and renewal and rebirth. A year later, the city is breathing. A year later, thousands and thousands of people are gathering. And why? Because they have experienced the exhilaration of shared labor in a God-ordained mission. And that shared labor led to a spiritual hunger in their hearts. They wanted to hear the voice of God. So they gathered at this square called the Water Gate. So the Water Gate was a gate in the city that led out and down into the Kidron Valley. 
and the Kidron Valley, there was uh, the city's only water source. And so that's why they called it the Water Gate. And so it was a very busy, very public place, which is exactly where the Word of God belongs. In a public place, in everyday life, in the comings and the goings of work and family and relationships and friends. And they gathered, and then they said the most beautiful words a preacher can hear. They told Ezra the scribe, Ezra, go get your Bible. Go get your Bible. So Ezra was the nation's leading Hebrew scribe. A scribe then was uh, a scholar. Um, He was clergy. He was a priest. He'd actually been in Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah. Man, he'd been waiting for this day. He'd been praying for this day. Ezra 7 Verse 6, as Ezra is the book just prior to Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, says that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, so that's Artaxerxes, granted all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So, so actually, Artaxerxes sent Ezra to Jerusalem because the temple had been rebuilt, although the city walls were still insecure. And, and Ezra started teaching the people the word of God. And, and on this beautiful day, after the city was secure and the people gathered, they wanted Ezra. Go get that book, Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a vision every Bible preacher ought to have. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it <laughs> and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. In, in that order, right? Set your heart, study, live it, and then teach it. And they called Ezra, go get your Bible. And the people had built a large platform and a raised pulpit so they could hear, right? And all morning long, Ezra read from the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All morning long, uh, uh, the word of God was read. And so they would have heard Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They, they, would have, they would have heard that God creates by speaking His Word. God, God says things, and things happen when God says things. Amen? And then they would have heard Genesis chapter 12, how God called Abraham out of Ur. And said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all nations will be blessed through you. They would have heard that. This is who we are. This is where we're from. This is our identity. They would have heard that. They would have heard Exodus chapter 4. When when 
God, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. They would have heard that. And they would have known who, who their father is. That God is their father. And then, I just love verse 8. It's, it's really, if, if Ezra's description is about who the preacher needs to be, Nehemiah 8 verse 8 is what preaching ought to be. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. The, your footnote in your Bibles, some of your footnotes say with interpretation. That is paragraph by paragraph. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So Ezra read it and Ezra explained it so that the people could get it and live it. He read it and explained it so that they could get it and live it. You see the word understand and understood. It shows up several times in chapter 8, verse 2, verse 3, verse 8, verse 12. So you see God's word comes to us and the intention is that it be understood that it be grasped and what is happening in the reading and the preaching and the explaining of scripture is a word that brother albert used and i'll use it it's the word expository teaching expository preaching expository exposit to put forth to put out there what the author put in there that's what biblical exposition is and beloved church if there's one thing that i would like to encourage you us about our reading of the scripture one question that just ought to circulate in our minds over and over again is simply this what did the biblical authors intend to communicate to the original audience when they wrote the scriptures See, what did the author intend? So the first question, when I come to this passage as I prepare for our... The first question that I ask is not, now what does this mean to Randy? <clears throat> Rather, what did Nehemiah mean when Nehemiah wrote these words to the people of God 450 years before the life of Christ? That's what we want to ask. And you know, that, that's going to take a little bit more time. All right? And that's why this section of Nehemiah is in what is called the, the plow horse pace section versus the race horse pace. Because it's, it's hard to answer the question you know, what did Nehemiah mean when Nehemiah wrote these words on a racehorse? It's just, they're just too, they're just going too fast. Okay. But you can do that on a plow horse. And, and then having learned the meaning, the meaning, then, then from the meaning we derive, here it is, the significance of the meaning in my context today. All right? So, so there's, what's Nehemiah's meaning? And then I, I, once, I have to nail that first. And then from that meaning, I derive the significance 
for my context, for my life, for my world, for my job, for my marriage, okay? So, so meaning, significance in that order. And that is what will build us. And so Nehemiah is writing this memory of what happened that day, this joyful gathering of God's people, uh, unified uh, beneath God's word. And then, then, it's almost as if, you know, he's writing this memoir, and we're looking over his shoulder, and then he turns back at us. And he says, is there anything, Randy, that you can think of that will build lasting change to people's hearts? Is there anything that can bond individuals into one people? Is there anything that you can think of in our nation that can fortify us better than hearing God's voice in God's word? Anything. And the answer is no, Nehemiah, there is nothing. And Nehemiah says, you know what, that was true for me too. So, so to read God's word is to enter God's world. So, so we're not just doing a religious task here. This book is a portal to capital R reality. And God's world is a world of security. That those Jerusalem walls won't keep God's people secure. They already know that. But the word will... And this is why Moses said to God's people at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, God said to his people through Moses, these are not just idle words. They're not empty words. They are your life. They're your secure life, a resilient life, a life that withstands the storms, a kept life. These words, here it is. And it has occurred to me, beloved, that the strongest words in God's vocabulary are the words shall and will. When God says in his word, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will give you what you need to say. I will protect you from the evil one. I will make your words effective. I will go before you. Those words, which constitute his voice, make us strong. And when God says, I will... Or I shall, you never need worry. Because God's will and God's shall are immovable pillars which death and hell can never shake. And I want us to know and feel the security that when we open the book, we enter a world of God's resolute promises God promises to be our help if we will put our trust in him God promises to be with us Jesus said in Matthew 28 I will be with you always to the very end of the age he is with you right now he's with you when you go into that difficult conversation with that person tomorrow 
He is with you when you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills. He's with you. He will not leave you. And when you open God's book and enter God's world, you're strong. How strong? Well, we got to go back to Psalm 112, verse 7. Psalm 112, verse 7 says, He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I want that, don't you? Oh, but there's a choice. You see, Nehemiah chapter 8 has to be read in tandem, I believe, with 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. Because you see, 150 years before this revival at the water gate, 150 years before this, this massive Bible conference, 150 years before Israel stood as one man joyfully receiving God's word, 150 years before that, their ancestors stood in the very same place, in the very same city, addicted and incalcitrant idolaters who had rejected the word. And I think some of the saddest verses in the Bible are 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy God's word read and received will build your life God's word rejected mocked at and despised will bring ruin and rubble and it's as if Nehemiah turns back over his shoulder and he says which world do you want to live in hmm. well something happened in verses 9 through 12. In the exposition of God's word, in the reading and clarifying and explaining and the expositing paragraph by paragraph, something happened. When the word of God was read and proclaimed, it melted the people of God. And verse 9 says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Why? Why? Well, the text is not explicit, but we can surmise from the context, I mean, several reasons. They were finally together. They were finally together. It had been over a century when the word of God had been preached like this in the city of God. We're home. We survived. God has brought us through. And just like that release, you know. This is just a release of weeping. And, 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 you know, they had worked on the wall together and, and, and experienced work together. Now they're worshiping together. And it was an in-person experience. I wonder if, too, they wept at the thought of God's mercy in view of their ancestors' sins. Chapter 9 is the longest prayer in the Bible. 
And it is about weeping over corporate national sin. But did you see what happened after Israel wept? Their tears were dried by the joy of God. So, so Israel wept, and then Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the clergy said something to these weeping people. What they said, I was taught in seminary never to say to weeping people. Pastors before weeping people are trained to say, uh, it must feel hard, you must feel sad, I'm sorry, etc., etc. Okay? Not here. It must be hard, you must feel sad, I'm sorry, etc., etc. <laughs> Well, not in verse 9. Nehemiah said, stop crying. <laughs> stop your crying. No crying today. Why? Why? Oh, here it is. This is beautiful. Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Here it is. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So what, what is the joy of the Lord? Well, well, here's what the joy of the Lord is not. It's not this. It's not, the joy of the Lord is not me exerting effort to feel what I think God's joy is so that I can be a strong person. Okay? It, it's, so it, that's not it. Here, let me tell you what the joy of the Lord is. It's being on your bicycle on a sunny afternoon and then going by your granddaughter's elementary school just as school lets out. And there I, by chance, saw my son Benjamin, so I just thought I'm going to ride up on my bicycle. I hadn't even planned on it, it just happened. And then I saw my little granddaughter walk out, and she saw me, and she looked surprised, and she saw my smile, and, and she smiled. That smile just made her day. She said, I wasn't expecting, oh, Grandpa, I was not expecting to see you. And, and, and then right there on the grass, as the kids were still pouring out of school, she slipped off her backpack, and she plopped on the ground and she started taking out all of the work that she had done there at school and she says look and this is what I did at school today and this was this assignment that I did today and this is what I did today I wasn't expecting on seeing you and this is what I did today and I made this and I like this and I'm so glad to see you and and we and then after all, she scooped it all back up and we put it in her backpack and we walked to her mom and dad's car and I kissed her and smiled and she smiled and she just went on her day she didn't have to exert any effort to feel joyful. She just consumed the joy I felt over her, and it made her day. Now, it's no effort for me to feel joyful over my grandchildren. And I am a sinful, broken, fallen man. Now, the significance of verses 9 through 12 is that when the Word of God is opened, we enter the world of God, and it is a world of joy. God's joy over you. I want you to feel that joy as I read Zephaniah 3, 17. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will. Remember what I said about the shall and the will? He will bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. This is our God. This is his world. I want to be in it, don't you? 
Well, this was a two-day conference here in chapter 8. The next day, it was a two-day conference that became an eight-day conference. The next day, the leaders of the families, the dads, they all gathered for a large group Bible study. And in this discipleship study, Albert, they read from the first five books of Moses. And they read about a feast called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles or Tents, like think camping tent. And you read about it in Leviticus 23. When Israel entered the land of promise, God established this week-long holy feast where they would, A, celebrate God's bountiful provision because it was harvest time. And then, B, commemorate how their ancestors lived in the wilderness for 40 years. So for 40 years, God's people lived as nomads in the desert, daily depending on God. And if you just look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, you see the rationale for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So for one week every year, God's people in their respective families went out and gathered branches and leafy trees to make Shelters and the entire city became an open-air campground and Bible conference. And verse 18 says that there was very great rejoicing because the Word of God was read and then reenacted. And God's people relived their heritage and their identity. Here's who we are. Here's who God is. Here's what He did for us. And, And what do we learn? What do we learn? We learned that when the word is published and practiced in our lives, this word opens a world of God's provision. So every time we open the word, we enter God's world. It's a world of security. It's a world of joy. It's a world of provision. And that's why the people obeyed in verses 16 and 17. And they just... They were just ecstatic. Verse 17 says there was very great rejoicing. So by performing the feast of booths, the feast of tents, Israel mastered the doctrine of God's daily provision. And the significance of that is that we can trust Him too. You see, and look up here, manna, is not for sale at Costco. It does not come in bulk. You can't stock up on it at the wholesale store. It comes one day at a time. God's mercies are new every morning. You know what? We have a food pantry here at the church. We don't have a mercy pantry because we can't store it. He delivers it every morning. And just as God gave his people daily bread for 40 years, we wait on daily grace for a lifetime because once you start walking in daily dependence on God, you have to keep walking in it. And we get desperate and we get depressed when we obsess over over enduring something for an entire life. And so we worry over this sentence. Here it is. Is blank. You fill in the blank. 
is blank the way it's going to be for the rest of my life? And I'm telling you, that question will just drain the courage out of your heart. And it's not a good question because God never gives you grace for a lifetime. He only gives it one day at a time, every day. And when you doubt that God has given you the capacity to endure your trial for a lifetime, you can rest assured that he has not. But he has given you the capacity to endure what you need to endure today. Today, Jesus sought strength from his Father every day. And Jesus will give you what you need every day. That's why Hebrews 4 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. I'm telling you, God has provided what we need today, when we need it, today. He didn't part the Red Sea until Israel got to the Red Sea. And in fact, when you look at the book of Joshua, you see that the priests, they didn't, they didn't cross the flooded Jordan. That, that, they, they crossed the flooded Jordan, but that Jordan didn't part till the priest's toes touched the water. <laughs> you keep walking. This thing ain't parting. Keep walking. <laughs> Help me, Lord. See, God has not promised to supply your hypotheticals. He's promised to give you the strength to bear what actually happens, not the 1,001 different things that you worry might happen. You have a difficult child, a difficult boss, a difficult job, a difficult marriage, a difficult disease, a difficult church, a difficult pastor. Oh, no, never that. <laughs> and the thought of what that looks like for the next 30 years may absolutely horrify you, but I want you to take heart in the thought that 30 years from now, you will be walking with the same loving Father, and He will be giving you exactly what you need one day at a time. You don't ever get enough manna for 40 years. You just get enough today. Now, can you live with that? It's really not a question. <laughs> God's word in your life will build your life. Declared and received. Understood and felt. Published and practiced. His word is a world of lasting security, fatherly joy, and daily provision. I'm almost done. But I want you to know what happened in this city 480 years after Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, Jesus entered the city. And it was the Feast of Booths. You read about it in John chapter 7. He celebrated this, this feast. And they read the book and they reenacted the feast. The feast of God's daily provision of manna from heaven and water from the desert rock. And when we look at John chapter 7, verse 37, we read these words, these words. Oh, the very last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He said that right out there in public. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
in that very public place before a huge crowd celebrating the last day of God's abundance and commemorating his daily provision, the Son of God stood up and said, Is anyone thirsty? Come to me. Drink. Anyone. He didn't say if anyone is thirsty for me. He said, is anyone thirsty? You see, people thirst. What are you you thirsty for? What are you seeking to quench your thirst? Where are you seeking satisfaction where it will never be found? You know, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, any man who knocks on the door of a brothel is in search of God. What door are you knocking on today? Let me tell you, you're really searching for God. And you come to me, Jesus says. Whoever, whoever believes in me, Hebrew, Gentile, black, brown, white, Asian, Pacific Rim, Latinx, any tribe, any nation, any language, whoever, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not stagnant water, not brackish water, not salt water, living water. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and quench your thirst and transform your thirsty heart into a bubbling bursting, gushing spring of life so that you then can be a source of joy to others and then together as a community, this church might be, by God's grace, an embassy of joy that displays the height and depth and width and breadth of God's love in Christ. Go get your book! Open it. Read it. And be ready to be transported into God's world security joy provision church family treat yourself to the voice of god